I want us to become brothers again like we used to be, and for us to find ourselves and bond with each other. Can we agree to that? Opinions vary. Welcome to Three Brothers Filmcast, monthly roundtable podcast where the three brothers behind Three Brothers Film chat about a chosen movie or topic, as well as broader items of interest in film culture. I'm Anders Bergstrom, here with my brothers, Anta, and Aaron, and my last name is the same as my brother's. And this month, we're chatting about the new multi-part documentary film by Adam Curtis, Can't Get You Out of My Head, An Emotional History of the Modern World, which debuted on the BBC's iPlayer earlier this month. In a world that seems increasingly chaotic and out of control, Adam Curtis's films have gained a cult following by delving into the fascinating and sometimes little-known stories that have shaped and continue to drive our world. As fans of his past works, including his previous film, 2016's Hypernormalization, we thought we'd share our excitement over his return to filmmaking and delve into both his filmmaking style and some of the overarching narratives Curtis is exploring through it. We'll also pay tribute to Canadian acting icon Christopher Plummer later this episode, who passed away February 5th at the age of 91. We'll offer a few thoughts about his place in cinema history and mention some of our favorite roles of his. As always, we invite you to subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and if you like what we're doing, please rate and review. Reviews help others discover the podcast, and we welcome your feedback and support. And of course, liking Three Brothers Film on Facebook and sharing the podcast is a great way to show your support for what we're doing here. We have some great content coming out later this month to celebrate the 10th anniversary of Three Brothers Film, and we hope you'll stay tuned and celebrate with us. Now, on to this month's roundtable. I can't get you out of my head. Okay, ramblers, let's get rambling. We are living through strange days. Across Britain, Europe, and America, societies have become split and polarized, not just in politics, but across the whole culture. There is anger at the inequality and the ever-growing corruption, and a widespread distrust of the elites. Yet at the same time, there is a paralysis, a sense that no one knows how to escape from this. Even in America, where there is now hope with the new president, there are also fears that despite the growing crisis, the system will just return to normal. This paralysis is also fueled by a technology driven by the aim of giving you today another version of what you had yesterday. And never a different tomorrow. Few filmmakers who aren't household names can claim such a distinct and consistent filmic vision across 30 years of filmmaking as Adam Curtis. With stories about the strange things that happen in the making of our modern world and the people who contributed to it, Adam Curtis's documentary films are an attempt to describe and give narrative shape to our world and how we got here. Working entirely with archival footage, and narrated by Curtis himself in his soothing English accent, his films combine news and historical footage, clips from old movies, music videos, and other random footage edited together in an associative collage with some truly wonderful deep-cut needle drops. It's an ambitious project, made possible to a large degree by Curtis's position at the BBC and his nearly unlimited access to their massive film and video archive. After leaving a PhD program in politics in the early 80s, Curtis was hired by the BBC making journalistic films. In his films, he's tackled the rise of individualism and public relations in the century of the self, to the war on terror, 
and the strange connections between neoconservatives and Islamists in The Power of Nightmares. More recently, in All Watched Over by Machines of Loving Grace, he examined the role of Silicon Valley and neoliberalism in our current political moment. It's hard to pin down Curtis's politics exactly, but with hypernormalization, which came out just before the 2016 U.S. election, and now with Can't Get You Out of My Head, he brings his project up to our current crises, including COVID-19 and how everything has coalesced at this exact moment. This new six-part, eight-hour film traces the origins of our feelings of powerlessness today, the radical movements of the 20th century, the triumph of individualism, and the loss of any new ideas. I, for one, don't think it's true to say that Curtis is simply telling us things people didn't know, but rather pointing out stories we've forgotten or ignored. Watching his films can be a real exhilarating experience for the way that he tells his stories and the proliferating connections between seemingly disparate events provides a rush of feeling few other documentaries do. I think that's part of why he's become a, both a beloved and polarizing figure in film and political circles, because he gets to the emotional content behind both filmmaking and our political and social environments. So, let me start by asking Anton, beyond the political and historical content of the film, how does Can't Get You Out of My Head work for you as a film? I would say I found the movie both supremely fascinating but ultimately unsatisfying. And I think part of that is the, that it's stretched over eight episodes. And early on, you see where um, you think he's going to be going. And it's, 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 as you sort of said, it's a little bit thrilling, it's exciting. And when he finally gets to sort of the present, and, you know, we've been tracing the roots of all these present issues and crises... I found it a little bit unsatisfying with how um, not complex some of his takes on the, the current situation were. And it just didn't, ultimately, it's sort of like a, a you know, an eight-part, or sorry, a six-part, eight-hour narrative. Uh, I didn't find it satisfying for its climax, for where it arrived at. Interesting. I do wonder how much of that uh, is due to him in my opinion i one of the things i really liked about the film is that to me can't get yet in my head felt like this is like a culmination of some projects that he's been working on going mm -hmm. back into some of his earlier films so there's his critiques of individualism his uh you know this idea of stasis or the loss of the new the, the technocracy and giving ourselves over to sort of computerized algorithmic ideas this is something that goes back to i mean all watched over by machines loving grace but even further going back to century of the self which i think a lot of people uh would say is probably one of curtis's sort of major works if not his most major work i mean it was even shouted out i think it was like two years ago by kanye west was like you guys gotta watch this documentary it's on youtube it's by this guy he's talking about mm -hmm. how edward bernays was freud's nephew was like created pr and all that so um yeah and it's interesting i i didn't find it as i found it a little more satisfying than you but um anyway i aaron what did what did you think so i think the the word you said in the setup uh exhilarating is kind of the way i describe his 
filmmaking style and his storytelling. And I think in the midst of all the confusion and just genuine unpleasantness of the current moment, it's nice to watch a film that seems to tap into not only the various historical movements that have led us to this place, but the actual like emotional feeling of what it's like to live in this suffocating world. And so that's why I think the title of the movie is so important, or the subtitle, I should say, An Emotional History of the Modern World. Because the emotional take is the key thing with Adam Curtis, I think. He ultimately is dealing with... Um, he's almost trying to make a corrective to what he thinks are wrong-headed views of how reality works, whether how they, you know, if whether it's political takes or whether it's cultural takes or pure pop cultural takes, he seems to be responding against that and saying that the shrinking way of viewing the world is leading to people's feeling, you know, a B and C. And so he offers his movies as a corrective, but he doesn't actually take a different approach in how to get there. He also uses various emotional narrative and and kind of repetitive tools to build up a case that works counter to what he sees as like the the suffocating nature of fear and powerlessness that is in our culture but his ultimate effect is wanting to be like well actually all these things are being told they're not necessarily true and it's very much a simplification and a a black and white story that's being delivered to you and so just on a pure emotional sense, watching a movie that takes eight hours worth of historical tidbits about the 20th century and various radical movements and is able to come to this conclusion of being like, actually, there's this grand history of, of why you feel the way you do and why you're not crazy and why it's not like some kind of secret occult thing. It's actually just picking up on strands of history that people ignore and deliberately want you to not pay attention to you. And... This is what it's not it's not even so much like this is why you're feeling or you are special. It's basically like you're not alone and I'm going to place you in the historical moment. So in a weird way, his whole recursive collage style, his his jumping back and forth between various kind of incoherent in some respects pol political views is basically just placing the viewer as the main character of the film he's telling. I just want to point out one thing, that, pick up on something you said there, Aaron, which is that this is not an occult history. And it's something I gestured to in my introduction here uh, by saying that these are not, like, he's not giving you the secret history. This is, you know, I've already read a few people who are like, Curtis is delving into conspiracy theory. And if someone who's never watched an Adam Curtis movie listens to this podcast and goes and looks at it, uh, looks up, you might find people accusing him of conspiracy theory, but he's not. In my mind, this is not conspiracy theory. It's, it's more like he. There's the emotional element here is in helping us, not in a therapeutic way, as in, uh, you know, then we'll be all better, but in a way helping us to process um, history that we've either repressed or rewritten or you know not dealt with, and I think. I can talk a little bit later about some of the specific ways that he gestures that in this series, but I, I just think that's important to point out. It's an emotional history, right? I mean, that's the subtitle, not a secret history. And it's funny that people would label him as being a conspiracy theorist because one of the, right, one of the uh, theses of of the work is that 
the conspiracy theories that people are obsessed with and have been obsessed with over the 20th century or since, you know, about the early part of the 20th century through to now have emotional reasons that underpin them. And that's what he's really exploring. Like, why, why is it that people latch on to simplifying conspiracy theories to explain the complexity of life? Um, one thing you said, Aaron, was that there's sort of this, the exhilaration of the, the buildup and one of my frustrations with the film was that I found it more repetitive and less um, culminating. I didn't actually s see it as much. I Early on in the first episodes, I saw it as a buildup in that you're getting new layers and new things added on. But by the final episodes, I felt that he was kind of just repeating the same point and exploring it in a new context. And that it wasn't so much that the themes were getting built up more and more. And yeah. so I was losing my, my, um, a bit of that exhilaration by the end. Um, but it, it might've also been also, you know, the setting of how you view it. I, I watched three hours to finish it off. And I think part of that was that by hitting the end of just three hours of viewing, right. It's a one ep yeah. episode five is like one hour. And then the final one's two hours that might've not been the, the ideal way to also finish off. I think you're picking up on something that's, that sounds accurate, even if my take... Like, I probably was more exhilarated and more on board with the film than you. I do think that it's completely fair to say that the film doesn't have this kind of conventional narrative build. It's weird because it's it's an eight-hour movie delivered in six parts, and I know there's this kind of waffling between is it a TV show or is it a movie? Is it a miniseries? Like, what exactly is this? And because it's delivered through the BBC iPlayer that clarifies nothing <laughs> like if anything yeah. that the delivery just muddles the waters even more mm -hmm. the way i think about it is actually similar to the oj made in america movie from 2016 where that was cut into different parts and the parts were in that movie the parts were necessary to allow you a bit of a gap to process the sheer amount of information that you're getting into your brain and i think that's the same thing here i don't believe it's a tv series because i don't believe each episode or part of it works as an episode as like a distinct unit what it is is that it's six parallel movements happening that all lead to one focal point at the end and so it's not actually a matter of part two builds on part one and escalates it it's merely that part two will like restart it and end up at the same point and then in part six he picks up there and takes you to the end that is this might be putting you on the spot, but have you thought about how you would, like, outline those structures? Like, what would be... Because I, I, I agree to a point that yeah. I think you're right, that, like, he does jump. It's not... They're, they're, they aren't strictly chronological, right? Like, the first episode mm -hmm. isn't only about, you know, the, the 19th century, and then we get... You know, there's definitely yeah. movements in time from, from now, back, and then he... You know, Curtis loves to do that, that, like... Oh, and then 15 years later, or 90 years mm -hmm. ago, and you get sort of those moments. It's digressive. Yeah. Building those connections over time. Yeah. It's a hyperlink film in a lot of ways, mm. you might say. For a guy who is in some ways, I wouldn't say skeptical or disil maybe more disillusioned with the possibilities of what the internet could have been and what it has sort of become. I actually think he is actually somewhat optimistic in the end, even though in my notes I have this as being one of Curtis's most melancholy and sad films, even though a lot of his films deal with stuff that 
you know, on the surface of it is extremely depressing, you know, war on terror, the, you know, economic collapse, all these kinds of things, right? But I also think um, I like, the reason I think of it as a film as well is that this is not, it's not an info dump, just purely, right? Like there is a narrative, he's building narratives, and he's building connections, particularly between characters. I think it's important that the, like the BBC website, one of the, uh, you know, things that they they give you along with the episodes is this list of key characters right and he'll go back to revisit these characters these people as you know diverse as michael x afeni shakur julia grant edward limanov right like bernard kuchner like people who you're like what do they have in common right and i think so but there's like sort of uh he connects them thematically and through their character development we get to return to them and, and see what happened to them and some of them go in very uh you know unconventional places but that points out one of one of my what i think maybe one of the i don't know if i'd say flaw but one of the aspects of the film that i'm actually i dislike the most is the fact that one of his main points is that in an increasingly complex world people retreat into fantasy or um, conspiracy theory or simplified narratives of what reality is. And what humans think of as their self is actually an accessory that tries to make sense of this chaotic mass of incoming data. But to do that, it has to simplify and turn that data into stories that are sometimes so simplified that they bear little relationship to the reality outside. What I actually found the documentary doing is constructing a simplified narrative to explain that complexity. I actually think the film itself is guilty to a degree of what he is charging, you know, our society is doing. In the sense that it's his reliance on anecdote, picking up on a couple individuals and trying to thread them together over time. I, I do feel like he's he's participating in this to an extent. I don't know how conscious that is, or if it's a sense of that it's inevitable, that you can't not do that. That's how we make sense of the world, getting into the psychological stuff that he's talking about in the film. I think actually the thing is, I I think it's deliberate, and I think he would probably admit that he is, he feels that the simplifications or the stories that we are told are lies. And that there is something profoundly emotionally powerful about a simple story of the world a a concrete thing that that holds up to to um inquiry or to you know that gives you a foundation upon which to to frame your own emotional experience of something and so i he's criticizing these things but i think he's criticizing them because the result of the various things that he's outlining whether it's the descent of radicalism into kind of consumerist culture, whether it's the shifting of proletariat revolution into authoritarianism, whether it's simply having guys who are trying to screw with you about conspiracy theories become crazed conspiracy theorists themselves. The result of all of these simplifications is to reduce us to afraid, powerless people. Because what it said was that in a dark world of hidden power, you couldn't expect everything to make sense that it was pointless to try and understand the meaning of why something happened. 
because that would always be hidden from you. And so he admits that the emotional effect of that is persuasive, but that the conclusion is wrong. And so his approach is to take the same tactic, but he wants to take you backwards. Basically, it's like you've driven along this road in this certain way on this train and you've arrived at this dead end station. I'm going to drive you back along the train and show you how actually it's not a one track. It's a multiple track. It's it's like he's using the methods of the confusion and the the various powers in the world against them to unwrite their narrative. And so I think the key thing with this movie is the conspiracy theory thing, which he picks up on which he shows through um, Kerry Thornley and his Illuminati stuff in the back pages of Playboy and how that dovetails with Jim Garrison's investigation into JFK and the friendship with Lee Harvey Oswald and all that and how conspiracy theories feed that spot in the brain of saying, no, you've actually onto something. He kind of does that in his filmmaking. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But because he's not using occult information, because he's not making using conjecture, yeah, he uses anecdotes to create emotional little vignettes here and there, but the actual historical movements, the actual footage that he's using, the actual um, narrative of history that he's building on is all real, and it's all out there. And the, the, the structural thing that kind of shows that he's not making anything up is that he is using the archival warehouse of like the greatest imperial database in the world the bbc to lay all this out there so it's not like he's breaking in and exposing things he's like no this is just the detritus of empire i'm just going to reassemble it to give you the story that they have conveniently told you is not true but he does use i guess there was a couple points like i agree that in the sense that it's not occult because I mean, he's drawing on archive footage. Um, you know, so often people are speaking the words. He's not putting words into their mouths. But he does use his famous sort of narrative um, repetitions, right, when he's describing something. And sometimes those bridge over or ascribe something that I was wondering if that's real. Like, he sometimes ascribes an emotion to the historical figures that I'm wondering whether it's provable or there'll be moments for instance when he talks about how the uh the op the growing opposition in the uh british empire to the opium trade and then he says something like and it mutated into the yellow peril the guilt over what britain had done to china began to mutate it changed into fear and i was like wait a second wait a second what's your evidence for that like it was one of those things where it's like I caught I felt like I caught him in a bit of a jump in the sense of you actually haven't proved that this one emotion mutated into another one. You've just ascribed that. No, that that's fair. <laughs> I think I but here's the thing. I think that those are moments where they should encourage you to dig back into things. Like mm, yeah, yeah. One of the ideals of a, a Adam Curtis thing for me that has been actually in my own even like research and work has been to get me to dig in. And guess what? Like, yeah, some of the narratives are slightly simplified, right? Um, but one, once you start digging into things like, uh, you know, when I watched all, all Watched Over by Machines of Loving Grace, his 2011 film, uh, three-parter, it, you know, and talking about the Californian ideology and its connections to Ayn Rand and, uh, you know, things like that. And that got me digging in. And the more I dig into that, it's like, this is actually like just all out in the open. I mean, when you, mm-hmm. you know, he didn't need to do as much work there because those things were there. And I think there's actually a lot of work based on like um, the way that the Yellow Peril came out of 
sort of imperial entanglements in the East, right? And especially also in America, then later in characters like Fu Manchu and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, the other thing, like even I would pick up on, like there's little things that I would have liked him to push into, but I think they would have in one sense derailed what Aaron's saying is the emotional trajectory of the thing, right? Like, so for instance, he, won, he interviews the one guy who's part of the, uh, the German Red Army terror, the Biedermeinhof group, right? Like one of the interesting things is that like that guy actually is like a neo-Nazi now. Like, mm. How did that? Like, there's a whole documentary on its own. Is like, how does a guy who was a radical left-wing terrorist go to becoming like a neo-Nazi, right? <laughs> like, yeah. So there's those kinds of things, but but I think that in in the overall arc, it's very interesting. But I want to get back to the what I think we're uncovering is some of his formal strategies. Right in terms of like even the work with character, um, he you know he you're, it, one might say if you're so in a setting up a film that is critiquing individualism, it seems strange to focus on individuals in mm-hmm. one sense, right? But how can but he's not necessarily saying that um, we're not individuals in that sense, but he wants to show, actually what he's doing is showing these connections. I think one of the most radical things about this entire documentary that in some ways pushes against the, the dominant political uh, and social beliefs of our time on both the right and the left is the idea of China, including China as one of the, the great powers that's suffering a crisis right now, right? A crisis of new ideas and, and saying that, no, actually China is perhaps much weaker than we believe it to be in terms of it's not necessarily its control over its citizens and, and things like that. But, but even just economy, Exactly, like, and how bound up we all are with each other, right, from the economic level. I mean, he shows how China pursues, like, this different course of action than we do, but I think in doing that, he wants to show the, like, sort of interconnectedness of human beings. And, and you know, you could almost imagine it as, like, uh, you know, do you know, the, you remember the films, uh, like, the Koina Scotsi, the, the yeah. documentaries, you know, the, the interconnectedness of life, and there's, there's some similarities there in, in trying to take a big-picture view of humans. And I think he does that a lot of times with, like, shots of you know people from like large distances marching in masses showing uh you know cities from like the air things like that so there's Mm -hmm. like cinematography in terms of that but then also like um just patterns start to emerge of like the editing and the choices of clips that he uses and things like that as well just like latching on to a bit of that comment which is the idea of the individual within it all and there is, he's kind of been open about some of his literary influences. And so maybe one of the reasons why I'm less likely to hold him to account for certain emotional um, papering over of things or, you know, deductions. He'll, he'll say, you know, Richard Nixon was scared here or, or Zhang Qing was, was driven by this emotion. And if this was an act or a, a work of journalism purely, I would be bothered by that because I would say that you are now taking it out of the realm of fact and you're turning into the realm of narrative and story. But I don't think he's a journalist. He's a filmmaker. He's a documentarian. He's working in that kind of Herzogian, more ecstatic, emotional level. Not to the, quite the degree of Herzog who will, like, fake things. Oh, note. But he's influenced by writers like Tolstoy, like John Dos Passos, trying to tell 
the stories of societies through key individuals who embody the emotions of those societies, which is why I think it's so important that the film brings you into it. It uses these individuals and it pleads its case to you as an individual saying, you're like Michael X, you're like Zhang Qing, you're like Afeni Shakur. You've experienced the fears and the emotions. They've, they've done, walked this path before you and made choices and come to conclusions based off things that you are now experiencing yourself about how the world works. And therefore, you have a chance that they don't to decide what the conclusion of the story is, which is where the hopefulness comes in. But that's, that's kind of its approach to narrative in terms of character. I think, like, I've probably been the most, and am the most negative on the film, even though overall um, I am positive about it. And I think you're pointing out some of the things that I think are actually great about this film, in that it, one, it's, a, it's, it's an accomplishment, regardless of whether, you know, someone is persuaded by his ultimate um, ideas or arguments. He's, he's told a highly complex and also um, epic in scope, story not only about right the west but he's talking about um, what's gone on in china in um mostly in the u.s in the the uk and the relation to the world through empire um through other connections so he's been able to distill um some important threads and i think the other thing he's doing that i was just like watching this i would commend it for how like on topic it was that like everything that seems like important in the moment right now, whether you're talking about what's going on with China, what's going on with, you know, conspiracy theories in QAnon, what's going on with our um, consumerism, what's going on with um, the internet and how we regulate speech and information, all these things he's taking on in like one, you know, mammoth eight hour documentary, but He's bringing it all together, and I give him a lot of credit for that because it's, it's ambitious in scope, and he, you you do need right these characters to make sense of it all. And it's clear; it's pretty easy to follow. It's not it's not like a confusing movie. That's the kind it's of fun. thing that it's it's easy to overstate when we dig into these complexities. It's the kind of thing that even when we were kind of approaching this episode, I was a little bit worried that if we just dig into what it gets into, it makes it seem like it's this muddled manifesto that like it's like a 500 page tone but no it's it's an eight hour movie in six parts which sounds really cumbersome but it is ridiculously entertaining especially if you have any interest in history if you have a formal interest in montage in music videos in the juxtaposition of ironic imagery um if you just simply like hearing tidbits about things that then you can go and dive into the wiki wormhole afterwards and really dig into it because mm -hmm. on a pure entertainment level, it actually works marvel marvelously and it works so much better than some of the didactic bullshit documentaries you get on Netflix. And this is what I would actually want to say. I think something both of you touched on, which is that he is a, a storyteller, right? And, and I think some of the criticisms of Curtis that even he's come up against in recent years in this film that he's maybe not, you know, glossing over things and stuff like that. I'm like, we don't hold other filmmakers to that account who are documentarians. I mean, Michael Moore, like <laughs> he's I think maybe it's, it's like when you want to be the critic of he's like, because I think it's partly because he's such a strong critic of the storytellers who've created the world today. Mm -hmm. And so that they have to push back, like, you know, like 
his films approach it in a principled manner so that if you undercut any of that, it seems like a loss of the the very righteousness that is almost the perspective mm-hmm. that you need to believe it because it has to be without cynicism and it has to be without guile. But I actually think it's all there on the surface in a way that's actually honest in a way that other, like the, the use of irony you pointed out, Aaron, mm-hmm. in, in juxtaposition, he, he, you know, in the use of sort of funny images or playing, you know, cool pop songs over, uh, you know, atrocities and things like that. Like there's, there's, there's a, he's, he's, all up front with it and a lot of the documentaries and i've watched a lot of documentaries in the last year actually i think we forget that documentary isn't there's no such thing as like a neutral status right no. like the mm-hmm. camera is always somewhere but if any if anything he approaches that because of his the the bbc providing this kind of panoptic uh source material right so but i come I'm back also aaron like i thought this film was both vastly entertaining uh, but also, like, there's some moments in this that are like terrifying. Sometimes only just because, uh, you know, you're you're reminded of the world that we live in. You know, I think of that footage of the f- person driving through a fire. I think it's the beginning of episode three. three. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's, a, it's this California wildfires in 2018. That's horrifying. Someone's it's just so horrifying. Like, oh my, oh my. You like couldn't make this stuff up. You know what I mean? If you want yeah. to. But that's kind of the thing with some of the emotional effect, though, and I why I keep framing it in this idea of us as a part of the story that he's telling. Because when everything comes to a head, and it's a brief, like, 30-second thing where he's like, and then COVID happened. And COVID clarified everything that everybody had always been thinking beneath the surface and brought it up. And this is the kind of thing that I have a conversation, whether it's a person at work, whether it's a family member, whether it's a friend I haven't talked to in 10 years. Everybody has this same feeling, the same emotional experience of the history we're living in. And it's it was actually like profoundly moving to watch something say that like the structures that have crumbled that are out there, this story that is occurring in front of you, it's like you are not the cause of this. Do you think that describing or thinking about how you and Anders have described the film, I think we could we could describe the film as also a, it's like a reverse engineering of the emotional, of like people's emotions. It, it shows how the feelings we have right now, right, have been created and manufactured. Yeah. And, he, and he comes at that very, you know, just clearly, but also like honestly, and really also shows how you get to that point. They're like, yeah. I think there's a really interesting point, which is one of the underlying uh, themes of the, the film, which is that we, and, and this is part of his critique of individualism, it's not all individualism necessarily, but it's this idea that there's something wrong with us and that we need to change our insides because our emotions come from within, right? But what if sometimes our emotions are actually impacted upon us from the outside, right? Like COVID, I, I, didn't, I had nothing to do with COVID starting. <laughs> But my emotions that I'm experiencing during this pandemic, and I kind of hit a wall last week of some of this stuff, it's like pretty common. It seems like a lot of people I've talked to have had those similar emotions. So that tells me that, no, those are not like within me. It's not something that I, if I just meditate more, I'm going to be feeling better, right? The way this film creates emotion is 
really through its film style. And I, I, I think that's a really important thing to mention, right? So the way the style creates a sort of sense of coherence. By layering this image and this image, you get something new. Um, and in this sense, I think that Curtis is really working in the same tradition of like uh, montage artists like Chris Marker or even like some of Godard's work and, and people like that, which may seem to some people, uh, you know, make it off-putting, but I think he does it in a really accessible way that isn't off-putting at all. Yeah, just in a basic description, if if you've never seen even a frame of his footage, he'll often have grainy shot of of a propaganda film from the 40s from china and then he'll cut to a ominous shot of skyscrapers in the 80s in new york and then he cuts to a music video moment say of of tupac or some 1960s jingle where you have black and white footage of happy go lucky white people dancing and then he'll have his kind of very dignified british narration which i think we have to be clear that plays into it if he had an if he was american it would seem a little bit like he's a crackpot but because he has this very calm dignified BBC. british yeah. bbc accent we think of david Attenborough, or people mm-hmm. and it just slips in and it says that this man is to be trusted which is again him using the tools of what he criticizes against those structures to critique them like he's He's using the shortcuts of of storytelling to to convince you of his argument. So his his interest in forging connections between um, things that are unlikely pairings is both the key to his um, his narrative structuring and like intellectual structuring, and then also the emotional aspect, right? The impact it has on you. So that it's a really interesting. Um, it, it's interesting the the repetitions too. I found both fascinating, but also sometimes troubling, or just like troubling in the sense of like uh, bothersome. Like there was times there was like we gained another of these strange um, the communist Chinese operas and like the dancers with the like, red guard propaganda. The, films. Yeah, the red guard propaganda dancing with like a you know a rifle um, in in a communist garb, and then or. Or his obsession with showing like just like people dancing, yeah, for long periods of time, and you're like, where is this one from? And it's like, and then he'll replay like certain images again and yeah. again, and you're wondering. I always wonder like how did he how does he like find some of these key clips? Like there's um, you know there'll, there'll be those one images that he repeats all in almost every part, and you're like, how did he find those ones? And then they sort of come to symbolize so much of what he's thinking. Or trying mm-hmm. to the case he's trying to make. Well, because he'll slow it down, right? And like he'll yeah. he'll linger on it, and the music will supply the emotion. So it's almost like you're boring into the soul of Zhang Qing or Afeni Shakur or, or Michael X, and you're seeing something in their eyes which might not be there, but because of the associations of what he's brought before, because of the montage effect through the Eisensteinian <laughs> almost <laughs> manipulative manner, he's he's building these these. Um, emotional parallels between everybody i think it's also like you mentioned the music i I think it's worth talking about the music in adam curtis's films because he he's definitely has an interest and he finds some really great tracks and there's a hit right there it's a hipster aspect to him that that the fact that like what the main thing that makes these movies cool and not just sort of interesting documentaries 
is his use of music. Mm-hmm. Like he's known for his use of like the, you know, like British, like art, like burial. Uh, it was like a electronic artist, you know, from the UK. Was Brian Eno. <laughs> yeah, of course, Brian, you know, Brian, yeah. is the great, like, uh, ambient artist. There's a lot of ambient music, a lot of like ele- electronic stuff, but also just pop music as well. Um, you know, and he finds sometimes those really great, uh, bits. I know they mentioned this on when he was on the, uh, the BBC's own, uh, talk show last a couple weeks ago with, uh, Mark Commode, the, there's this really great, uh, cover of the Smith called the light 3000 by an artist named Schneider from like 2001 that's just like you at first when it starts out it's like sort of like clicking electronics and then you realize that it's like the cover of the the smith there's light that never goes out and you're just like oh this is just amazing or like i i've mentioned a number of times to you guys the at the end of uh episode four the the use of this track by this band johnny boy that i didn't know who they only have one album and was connected somehow to manic street street preachers but um you know and it's that uh we are the generation that bought more shoes and we get what we deserve and it's just like this song was written in 2006 and yet the lyrics and everything feel like they were like written for his documentary it's like at one point they sing i just can't help believing though believing sees me cursed it's like <laughs> you know like i don't know so he's really really good he's obviously uh, a music fan he's into you know that typical british uh music media culture do we know how large his team is for like pouring through these archives and finding stuff because i'm just curious about the whole process because he's pretty opaque with the process i haven't been able to find anything about him actually discussing how he puts these together it seems like it's kind of his uh trade secret well it it is definitely it takes him five years something amazing right like (laughs) it's one of his strongest things is that he's found often he's like he, he finds interviews that people have either forgotten about don't remember but right it's there like the the young tupac recorded when he was like 16 yeah before he's the rapper doing a fascinating right discussion of like revolutionary politics and gangsterism as like failed like you know revolution angry reaction about yeah against failed radical movements forgetting that his mother was a radical and they had a lot of footage of the they had a lot of footage i was surprised by how much footage of the the cultural revolution they had like Mm -hmm. you know footage obviously shot at the time even some of the tiananmen stuff like he had yeah impressive. not the so usual images right they're not yeah. the usual it's not just that one image of the guy standing in front of the tank it's not tank man it's the camps and the student protests yeah and, yeah um so for you guys uh you know we've mentioned a few times this is an eight hour documentary six parts um and anton you we've mentioned a few times that it's you know there is repetition even as it builds to something and maybe we can end our conversation about what it builds to and hit why I see it as ultimately uh, optimistic in some ways. But is there an episode for you guys that you would recommend to someone if they didn't have time for eight hours that they were just going to sit down and watch one? Um, I'll, I'll go first because I, I have one. I think that – I think is it episode four is the Lordly Ones? Or episode, episode, part five. Five. episode five. Part five, the, the Lordly Ones I think is really good in terms of its analysis of empire in Britain – and very specifically about that, even though it's the one that contains, I know, Anton, what you're talking about, the what you felt is the jump from the Opium Wars to the Yellow Scare and that kind of thing. But um, I think it does a really good job of analyzing something about the, as I said earlier, the, the failure to come to grips with um, 
the histories of our own countries, right? Like a sort of a, a, a repression or suppression of the past in some ways and, and a desire to see ourselves as exceptional in some way. And, and it's, it's traced through some of the earlier episodes in episode one with the stuff about the Kenya and, and things like that. But um, I think that one, just on its own, stands as a very interesting document that I would recommend to anyone. So if if people have never watched any of his stuff before, I would just say start at part one and see what you think because he does um, because he does approach this a bit as a culmination. People like me who are weirdos and have watched, you know, all, not all of them, but like six or seven of his very long films, um, recognize the way that it pulls bits of the trap in here and it pulls bits of power nightmares and it pulls bits of these earlier arguments but he seems to be approaching it as if you have no context of his his style and so part one is very much like i'm going to sink you into the warm water and it's why he starts with that phrase you know we're living in strange times and america and in the uk people are overwhelmed by the feeling of uneasiness about how the direction the world is going and so he's setting up something that should be undeniable for any viewer and he's going to tell you why you're feeling that way and it's it's kind of like an automatic or um uh, it's a very smooth emotional transition into his specific form of filmmaking and his specific form of storytelling so yeah i would just say start at part one yeah. see what you think i would agree aaron that in one sense that uh even though this is sort of like you know his most recent film and it's about things now in many ways it's kind of like a really good primer and intro to adam curtis and, you, and if you know you could go back then and explore some of his other more focused uh films and that's kind of going back to something i said much earlier in this conversation but it's it's why i think he breaks this film up into six parts it's not because it's a tv show it's because he doesn't want to overwhelm you and he wants to give you the uh, like as much as you can take but not not blow your mind with just too much information. It's the whole, like, if you watch one part in the evening, you're going to get time to decompress, get interested about where it goes, and then start again the next day. <laughs> so it's it's simply like a breather. <laughs> what I found very compelling about the first part was it's the way it sets up a bunch of things, and without him even saying explicitly how they're connected to specific things right now, you already start to get an inkling of like where he might be going with this. For example, his in in the first part, the way he talks about um, paranoia in the American culture, going back all the way to the Puritans leaving England, how it's a part of, it's always been there in the background. And then he has an example of like the John Bircher Society in the early 60s or late 50s, thinking that Eisenhower is a plant of the communists and you're like oh my goodness like this conspiracy theory this drive towards conspiracy theory has been a part of like american conservatism since its inception in the 50s right or the late 40s Um, late 1700s yeah (laughs) well actually that points to another one of my big beefs with adam curtis is just that like as someone who's right like I'm i'm a renaissance scholar he only is interested in the past two centuries. The modern, but the not, modern, not in but the even the, really the, They're very modern. Like 1940 to now. And so some of his 
points which I think are good points and I think a lot of people would be like oh that's a really good point but I'm like the whole idea that like the the fact that psychology was discovering that your your maybe your conscious self is having you know is uh isn't the only part of you that you're sort of having tensions with other part of yourself I'm like well yeah so we could go back to Freud we could go back to Luther we could go back to St. Paul like he's just seems he's not interested in the fact that these things actually aren't just ideas no it's not out. that he's not interested is that he is primarily interested in how they're expressed through the visual form of television and film which doesn't exist so it, it's it's almost yeah. a nature of the fact that he's an archivist like that is his method of filmmaking mm. means that he is tied in the actual historical period he can explore so he can really only explore the past whether it's the opium wars through the propaganda films because that allows him the footage so it's the kind of emotional um way of investigating history through the visual medium of film that actually that actually solves the the problem in some way, Aaron, of why Anton, he skips from the Opium War to the uh, the Yellow Peril stuff is because that's when all that footage was made. I, I right? get, like, I get because he couldn't that, like, actually you know, show. This, this yeah. is his domain, right? And he's going to work in it and we can't really ask him to know everything or talk about everything within a film, right? Like that's, we can't fault him for that. But he'll sometimes just make claims like a sense of Englishness that emerged in episode five, he talks about in part five with the lordly ones, this idea of Englishness uh, emerged in the 1920s or the 1910s, right? And I was like, well, not really. Like the whole idea of an English gentry, this is going back to the Civil War and earlier. But I just, I find it hard when he sort of makes these statements about like, this is when it began. He doesn't ca- He doesn't qualify or categorize his statements, yeah. even yeah. if he knows different. Um, so did you ultimately think that the, the film was, you know, whether Anton, you said it was a bit of a, you know, sputtered out at the end for you. I, I thought it ultimately to take up on Aaron's idea of uh, posing us as the main characters, it, uh, ends up being somewhat hopeful, even though it sort of puts the work onto us. And I think that that David Graeber quote, which he opens and sort of ends with is really, really important. The anthropologist and activist David Graeber, who died last year, described the forgotten idea that is waiting to be rediscovered and how thrilling it could be. The ultimate hidden truth of the world, he wrote, is that it is something we make and could just as easily make differently. And I think that, to me, is where the hope comes in, right? Mm -hmm. But we... And I think sort of the thesis of the film in many ways is that we've given up on that. We've, we think that we're, you know, ironically, even as we've become hyper-individualistic, we see ourselves as completely helpless to think of anything different. Yeah, I think that's the closest he comes to a, a political statement or manifesto yeah. out of this. His work's very nebulous, and it seems like he's deliberately, and I think correctly, attempts to dodge these simple binaries that exists in our current political spectrum. But that's, I think, the closest to something that you can take away and be inspired by, which is actually a very conventional documentary tactic where you spend 95% of it doom and gloom and then 5%, well, but there's a chance. <laughs> I guess I was a little bit less, I sensed less hope in it. 
than you guys. I to me he sounded a little bit more sad and like right guys? Like you guys can you guys can change your minds, right guys? <laughs> I did mention it was very sad no, and melancholy. But film. you know you know why I think it's that because it stands out in marked contrast to his previous works, which don't offer you any of that. Mm. So that's a thing where somebody who has a bit more of a, a context within him as a filmmaker can make that be like, oh, he's added something new. And that seems to be a statement in and of itself. wrap up uh, thinking about the new and what might emerge next um i think we want to spend a bit of time at the end of this podcast talking about canadian uh acting legend christopher Plummer, who, who passed away a couple weeks ago i basically think that christopher Plummer. i don't even think this is like a subjective take he's the greatest canadian actor of the 20th century and i don't think there's you could take it on film or you can take it on stage and the fact that it's both kind of makes it inarguable. Yeah. I mean, even, you know, we're, I'm, I'm recording this from Waterloo, you know, less than half an hour away from Stratford, Ontario, where Plummer, you know, that, that festival wouldn't be a thing with, to some degree without him. Yeah. So do you have specific, uh, when you, you know, when Plummer died, was there specific films that you thought of uh, that came to mind immediately? I think for for i i don't know if I, I can speak for all three of us but i think you know growing up in our home obviously the sound of music played uh, a, a big role i think our mother has said it's her favorite movie of all time uh and you know it was a film that we watched frequently as children and so you know see you know he even though I know that Plummer kind of tried to distance himself from oh, the role, he hated as, it. He hated when, it. when the movie but, came out in dirt in in the years sort of immediately after it he really like publicly said he like loathed it and hated it and i guess in his memoir and by the time he sort of in his later years he started to soften on he didn't sort of come super warm but he softened on his like dislike but i think a little bit of that is just the kind of actor he was and like i feel like yeah it's just, it's almost like part of the persona where he can't like the fact yeah. that he was in this amazing children's musical and I think it's easy to, uh, I rewatched Sound of Music this past week, and it's easy, I think, for uh, people in our cynical day and age to, uh, you know, see it as sentimental or, or saccharine or how it, you know, papers over history and some things like that. But it actually, rewatched it, it works phenomenally well as a film. And it's, and it's in part to his performance. He's, you know, my, my kids who had never seen it before, the boys were like, at first, they were put off by him and his, you know, whistling and being very strict to the kids. And they immediately began to see how subtle his performance is and the love he has for his children. And and let's be honest, he was an extremely handsome man, and he gives some like really, really great like iconic images. I mean, I know it's popped up in uh, GIF form over the last few years, but the image of him like tearing a Nazi flag in half is a great like moment, you know. 
there was a comment on the recent episode of Film Spotting, which when they were talking about Christopher Plummer briefly and the sound of music, and I thought it was so it sums up things so well about him as an actor, which is the sound of music is a favorite, um, you know, stage play for high schoolers to do. But oh dear lord, do I feel bad for whoever has to play Captain Von Trapp because they'll never ever 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 live up to Christopher Plummer. There's just no chance. And so it's, and it sounds funny because it's a, you know, it's this role, it's a simpler quote unquote movie than some of the other ones he did later in some of the stage work. It's not Shakespeare, it's Rodgers and Hammerstein, but, and it's not necessarily the film he wanted to be defined by, but it's the first thing that came up when he died. And the fact that it's a movie that's over 60 years old, is it almost 70 years old now? It's 1965, so... Yeah, pretty close to 70. So, the fact that it still has that kind of control over our imagination, and had he's such a huge part of it, like, obviously, Julie Andrews is, but... And Robert Wise direction. But his romantic appeal is the reason why our mom loved Christopher Plummer throughout her entire life. Anybody who was interested in men over the age of 50 seemed to have some kind of crush on him at some point in their life, especially Canadians, because he was put out there as this this great charming thespian which we don't have many of them which we have more than people think but you know you, people might not want to latch onto william shatner as one of <laughs> other stratford uh that's they're good friends but he was also great alongside shatner in star trek 6 the undiscovered country which i i re-watched reminded how much i actually liked that that episode in star trek but i wanted to connect a couple things so sound of music um the Undiscovered Country, uh, Plummer plays General Chang, one of the uh, the Klingon, he's like the Klingon head general, and right, it's about, the movie's about the, the Klingons forming a peace treaty with the Federation, and then there's various machinations and assassinations. It's about the old cold warriors who can't let go of the Cold War. Yeah, yeah. What I found watching his, so my boy's love sound of music and they've watched it a lot so i'd seen it recently and then watching his role in star trek i noticed some things about his acting style that i just wanted to point out that i thought were very um like uh they're memorable they're even maybe iconic one his smile he has a very distinct smile and when he smiles he it, it can be charming and then he also will smile when he is being um aggressive or angry too and he can use his smile in both ways, both to charm. But there's a certain sort of strong and almost uh, potency to his smile. And I can even think of him on the stage getting his Oscar. And he also has this smile that's very powerful. Um, so his General Chang is always smiling at Kirk when they meet at the dinner scene. And and you see the way Christopher Plummer smiles um, when in Sound of Music when he's approaching uh, one of the Nazis at the dinner party. Like, his smile is being used in an aggressive way. Um, and he also, the way he looks daggers with his eyes at Maria when he's like, disapproves of her. So he was very good. You could tell, you know, you can tell he has the background and stage because he's, he's able to use in a very controlled way certain features, such as his smile, his, the way he holds his eyes to convey so much emotion and information to the audience. And then the other thing... Also coming from his background on stage, but I would say especially as a Shakespearean actor, is the way he modulates the speed of his speaking. 
in a very controlled way that reminds you of, say, like Lawrence of Olivier, where they go faster or they go slower, and that conveys so much, and they do it very precisely. And this goes back to, I, I didn't have a chance to rewatch all three hours, but Plummer did a TV version of Hamlet from 1964 called Hamlet at Elsinore. To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or to take arms against a sea of troubles, and by opposing, end them. And I watched the first 20 minutes or so of it, and I, I have to go out and watch the rest of it, because it's really good. And it was the first time that Hamlet was shot in Denmark at Elsinore. So it's shot on location. The production values are actually very high. And the cast is great because that's also um, uh, Michael Caine is Horatio and Robert Shaw plays Claudius. And the scene where Horatio and uh, Hamlet meet was also a great, a great scene to just convey this sort of his modulating because he's like, Hamlet's going between his like, Oh, very slow and he's like and then he like gets fast 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 and I just thought it was a great and that connects to the other thing last thing I'll just say is that in Undiscovered Country I've always loved how his Klingon was obsessed with Shakespeare and is quoting yeah. lines from Shakespeare throughout the movie while he's terrorizing Kirk tickle us do we not laugh prick us do we not bleed wrong us shall we not revenge and it's just brilliant. And no one else, right, like could have done that role. It's the fact that Plummer is the villain. It's interesting that you mentioned the Hamlet Elsinore that Michael Caine plays Horatio, Horatio, because uh, the um, he also Plummer was in John Huston's Man Who Would Be King with Michael Caine and Sean Connery, who also just passed away this last mm. fall. So it's like we've lost Plummer, we've lost Connery, and him. Yeah, you know, but it was nice. That's, Kane is like, you know, up there with, with these friends, these guys, these that generation of actors who could, you know, do all that. Well, Kane obviously not known for his Shakespeare, but Plummer in just that small role, he plays Rudyard Kipling. He's like the, you know, in the frame narrative, but meets the characters in the film, and that's always a was a memorable one for me. In the last Plummer did a lot decades. of those. Um, he did a lot of the those sort of in the sixties and seventies, the sort of like uh, British imperial adventures. That they had mm-hmm. and Michael Keynes in a lot of them too, but yeah, Plummer shows up in a lot of those. Yeah, I think it's it's interesting what you uh, said about his smile and the dual purpose that he was able to kind of weaponize it on screen or use it as a charm or use it as a threat. And that's the older he got and the wrinklier he got, and <laughs> you know, no, it's 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 just a fact is that the more his kind of eyes shrunk down and the, the the wrinkles got larger and the folds in the skin whenever he would smile, it seems like that's all his face became right in later moments. And it's I happened to watch like Dragon uh, Growth of Dragon Tattoo a week before he died because I was just rewatching it. I fell in the mood because I was reading uh, the latest book and his performance in there. It's not he's not like a main character, but he's a, he's an important part and he's. There's something about the fact that you have him as uh, Vonger, like the the patriarch of this dark and mysterious family, and 
just the fact that you casted Christopher Plummer seems to convey all you need to about the fact that this is a powerful man. Mm-hmm. And this is a man that if he want if he can be a great ally or he can be an awful, awful enemy. You will be investigating thieves, misers, bullies, the most detestable collection of people that you will ever meet. My family. And the, in the movie, he happens to, you know, side with, with Daniel Craig's uh, Mikhail Blomqvist, but it's, on the flip side of that, it's a very similar performance to All the Money in the World, where he replaced Kevin Spacey and he played John Paul Getty, and he's just pure avarice, menace, and just all, he he's essentially a character playing a, like, figurehead of money in that film. He's almost not a character. Like a personification? Yet, yeah, he's, he's a personification, and but because it's Christopher Plummer, and even though he filmed the role in like one week because Ridley Scott was trying to replace Kevin Spacey like really quickly late uh, in the right before the release, Christopher Plummer is just mopping the floor with every other actor in that movie. And it's it's another one of those things of being like he's he was he's so good and he's so dignified on screen that he almost shames some actors. And like I like Mark Wahlberg in some roles. I like Michelle Williams a fair bit, but. They're just different classes of actor. It's interesting that you mentioned so Girls Dragon Hat too and All the Money in the World. And I think one of the the other big roles in the last few years that he'll that a lot of people would remember him for will be Knives Out as the mm-hmm. the dad, right? Which is a very similar role on the surface to those the the patriarch, this person that holds this whole family together and when he's gone, you know, things fall apart. But obviously he plays it in a very different way, but he still has that strength and sort of control of the, the family, even though he's not as sinister. He was right, like he was great in these probably in the last you know, right, three decades, he was mostly playing um, not the lead, but either sort of villain or important supporting roles. But he always just like nails it in those roles. And so much of the films really like hang on him and i even mentioned it right in that christmas movie uh i reviewed and talked about in the, our first podcast um the man who invented christmas that he got to i got to, you know we got to see him in the role of scrooge and you know he's one of the most memorable parts of that movie so he was great in these more character roles um i think performers like him like olivier like patrick stewart we kind of undervalue because they are such consummate professionals they never mm-hmm. gave less then they're all or the a- absolutely appropriate amount of of professionalism to the role that they're playing. And so I think there's usually it's almost bad for these guys in terms of a career because it means that you expect the best from them always and the best becomes ordinary and therefore they're not getting rewarded because they're rarely surprising, which is why I think a role like Beginners, Mike Mills film, the one he finally won an Oscar for where he's Ewan McGregor's dad who comes out late in life after his wife dies and finally gets to live openly as a gay man and kind of explore this playful side of himself that he's kept secret for the sake of, of his, the dignity of his wife. And I understand why he won the Oscar for that because it is such an uncharacteristic Christopher Plummer role is he has a puckishness to him even when he was older, but he rarely allowed to play that in the roles that he was given. And so there's a film that actually it's like, Christopher Plummer seems happy on screen a lot, but he doesn't. You you're wary of his happiness sometimes because of that that nature of his smile and because of you know the twinkle in his eye that could mean a threat. But in this film, it's like 
it allows him to let his guard down in a way in the performance. But it's actually just, in actuality, it just shows the, the range that he was capable of as an actor. Because it's not like we're getting an authentic plumber in that role and we're not getting that in in The yeah, Insider yeah. or Sound of Music or <laughs> any of those. It's just that he's so convincing in all these different modes that it's almost too bad that people didn't allow him to show the full expression of, of just how good he was always. Mm-hmm. And that puckishness comes out in his famous Oscar acceptance speech. And he has that line about, like, where have you been all my life to... to <laughs> To the statue. You're only two years older than me, darling. Where have you been all my life? <laughs> yeah, and then also a bit of a self-deprecating comment about his wife, or himself, yeah. and his wife holding them together, kind of, because yeah. he did have a bit of an infamous uh, reputation as a bit of a womanizer and a. Yeah, and I think also I think uh, problems with alcohol early on. With yeah, many great performers, but. Mm-hmm. No, definitely. You know, when you start digging back into it so many little like great roles um even you know even in the the voice in the pixar up right like as months the villain like yeah that was for my for my boys that was the one that i was like trying to say who he was and they were like oh yeah yeah and i was also thinking of him as the grandfather in national treasure (laughs) 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 where he actually just he gets to be a genuinely just nice grandpa Supportive in a way that John Voight's father is not immediately so, but uh, <laughs> no, it, it's, huh. I, I, it's it's funny that just we're talking about these roles and just reminiscing, and it does seem like even though you know I probably wouldn't say Christopher Plummer is my favorite actor or anything, but he's had such a important role in various films that I care about, and it, it there's an affection for the performer, and I think also because we're Canadians, we feel like he's a uh, he was a national treasure. Yeah, so I, I feel like he's one of those. He's one of the actors who I probably just sort of grew up knowing his name and liking him and felt like, feeling like he was like an important actor since as long as I can remember. And remember, we're Canadians. We always feel inferior to the states. So it was so very and and Britain too. And so it feels it was nice to have this actor who was unequivocally the equal of all of his, you know, fellow performers on the world, whether stage or screen. So what we need is the Adam Curtis documentary about the emotions of Canadians. <laughs> I was actually thinking about this and in joke texts. Inferior. No, I was, I, I was thinking about doing a, like a 10-minute joke documentary through the style of Adam Curtis, but about the Toronto Raptors championship run in 2019 <laughs> because it expresses all the inferiority complexes of Canada and the idea that the Raptors were this cursed team. And then something strange happened. And, and then, Kawhi you know, left. They, and they no, couldn't exactly. understand why he would leave at the top. I just feel like there is Adam Curtis is like a subgenre and a formula in of itself that you can like now plug in a means of understanding other things. So, well, I definitely maybe on a last note, I'll just say that the fact that he could, you know, we can meme meme joke with him, but he's kind of doing like meme history in the sense of he's he's finding patterns that recur throughout history and using the the visual images of the you know last 120 years to to do yeah. so join us again next month uh, for a three brothers podcast but stay tuned later this month uh just a reminder that it was 10 years ago in february of 2011 that we first launched three brothers film our website um 
and we've got some, you know, content and to use that fraught term that Martin Scorsese mentioned in his recent Harper's piece for you. Um, so check the website, watch the podcast. Uh, we got something cooked up for you there, but we'll also be back for a regular monthly episode in March. We'll probably, probably, I'm, I'm. This is an on-air production meeting a bit, but I'm assuming we're going to be talking about Zack Snyder's about the Justice Snyder League. Cut. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. And I and I would also say for we have these smaller, right? We usually discuss something in a shorter front time frame at the end. If there are things that you want us to look at in a future podcast, do leave in the comments. We will yep. consider it. Yeah. So that you know, just once again, a reminder that uh, you know, like, subscribe, review, rate. Uh, let us know if you're enjoying this and, uh, you know, stay tuned for more Three Brothers film. So thanks for joining us and we'll uh, be coming at you next month. Goodbye, Mr. Bond. I bid you farewell. Be cheerful, sir. Our revels now are ended. These, our actors, as I foretold you, were all spirits and are melted into air, into thin air. And like the baseless fabric of this vision, the cloud-capped towers, the gorgeous palaces, the solemn temples, the great globe itself, Yea, all which it inherits shall dissolve, and like this insubstantial pageant faded, leave not a rack behind. We are such stuff as dreams are made on, and our little life is rounded with a sleep. <laughs>